Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. The Podcast Playground. Taking a walk with Buzz Knight. Glad you're here with us at the Country Music Hall of Fame Museum this morning. Well, Paul Kingsbury, managing editor of the Country Music Hall of Fame, I am so grateful to be here with you. Well, it's, we're going to have fun. We're going to take a walk through country music history with some nice side trips. The first side trip we're going to start is our exhibit on a Country Music Hall of Fame member, famous Grand Ole Opry star Bill Anderson who has been a force in country music since the late 1950s. And you can see Bill worked closely with us. You can see all the photos he shared with us in here of him with his band, uh, him as a young high school pitching star in Georgia. And you can see how we do these things. Uh, when we feature a Country Music Hall of Fame member like Bill Anderson, you get all of this interesting memorabilia. His first album that he did for Decca Records, the typewriter that he used when he was doing songwriting lyrics and answering fan mail, guitars, eye-popping costumes owned by Bill Anderson. Um, Paul, eye-popping costumes is an understatement. I love these colors here. This uh, stage wear is uh, a vivid purple. That's right. Say, right? And, and here we've got one that's a bright green with um, quill pens. as <laughs> The motif is quill pens all over it because, of course, Bill Anderson is an amazing songwriter who's written hits for everybody, including gave Connie Smith her first hit first number one hit, uh, James Brown, Aretha Franklin, uh, George Strait, um, 
goodness gracious, Brad Paisley and Alison Krauss, Whiskey Lullaby. I mean, Bill Anderson is written for everybody. How would I look in the purple outfit? Just curious. <laughs> very dapper. Very dapper. It looks just about your size. You and Bill Anderson are close. It's amazing. And, and because Bill was so instrumental in Connie Smith's early career, we've got a costume, a beautiful dress from Connie Smith, and uh, records and things, uh, awards for Connie. And you can see some of uh, Bill's sports memorabilia. He's a huge baseball fan, big Atlanta Braves baseball fan, because he's from Georgia. And he embraced the nickname Hillbilly. Well, I, I would Bill say... Billy Anderson, it well, said. Well, early, but eventually he got the nickname Whisperin' Bill. Okay. Because he has that breathy singing voice, and uh, most people, if they're going to nickname him, call him Whisperin' Bill. I won't call him Hillbilly, then. <laughs> he won't mind. <laughs> he will answer to it. He will answer to it. So anyway, he continues to be active as a songwriter, as an artist. You can see him regularly on the Grand Ole Opry. So this is this is our Bill Anderson exhibit. And Where is he living now, Paul? He lives here in Nashville. Okay, got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And um, he was very generous with the exhibit and has been proud to take his friends and family through it. Well, he should be proud to be here. All right, you see we have good crowds today in the museum, and we're going to... I'll tell you what, we'll take a, a little detour again just before we get into our main walk through history because we have a beautiful exhibit on Martina McBride. And just as with the Bill Anderson exhibit, she was very cooperative. So get this, she was singing with the family band when she was just a little kid. There's a photo of Martina, look at her. She's the little kid on the left there holding a microphone. A little girl is Martina, and her dad is standing beside her with the Telecaster guitar. When she was growing up in Kansas. Wow. Love and this that. is all her childhood stuff. This is one of her childhood stage costumes. Look how tiny she is. And then, before she became a country music star, she was in a band <laughs> back in Kansas called the Penetrators. And she said she had no idea that might have any meaning beyond. We're going to penetrate you with our music, which is so great. It's awesome. a little naive. Yeah. Her wedding dress. So, Paul, when an artist, um, you know, collaborates with you on an exhibit um, and, you know, goes back in, into mm -hmm. their archives, right? Um, do they express the process of them going through their archives? Oh, yes, like, yes. Like, is it... Is it something they always embrace, or sometimes is it a little it, bit odd for them? Or uh, Most of them are very eager to share their memorabilia, you know, their costumes, their instruments, their awards with the fans. For some, for, for some artists, just because of how busy they are, it's harder than for others. But we found they, they, you know, once they agree to do the exhibit with us, they're very cooperative. Some are very hands-on, you know, personally like, here, let me show you what I've got. Others are, you know, stand back to say, well, what do you think you want? And then they see what they have, or they turn it over to their assistants to help us go through storage areas and things like that. Got it. So this is our permanent exhibit, Sing Me Back Home, and it starts with the earliest commercial country music of the 1920s. And so we've got people featured here like D. Ford Bailey, the first great black star of country music, and there's his harmonica and his megaphone that he used on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry. He's now a member of the Country Music Hall of Fame. 
the Blue Sky Boys, who played guitar and mandolin. Wow. Beautiful. And then we, we just move on through history. I will point out one interesting thing that you may have noticed over here, Buzz, and that is to show people the core of what we do, the Country Music Hall of Fame has exposed our archives. There's our audio lab where we restore historic country recordings of various kinds and either put them in our archive or share them with the public in commercial recordings. You can see books and things over there in that compact shelving. Even though there's an exhibit down there, which is Chris Stapleton, which we'll see in a bit, there's more archival space beyond that. I mean, this is the premier research and collection center of country music in the world. We have the most country music recordings in our library of any place in the world, more than 200,000, from Edison cylinders all the way up to, uh, obviously, you know, CDs, and of course we're collecting MP3s and things like that. But um, we've got more than 500,000 photographs, films and videos, more than 1,900 costumes, more than 500 instruments. I mean, it's, it's an incredible repository. So when you collaborated with Ken Burns right. on the uh, PBS amazing right. uh, uh, series, uh, did he have access to some of he, this? He was able to access some of it. Now, I'll, I'll tell you that um, at that time, um, I was actually working for another organization. I've had two stints at the Country Music Hall of Fame. I worked here from 1985 to 2002. Then I went off and did freelance writing and other things, and I came back two years ago. And so I actually, the seven years that I worked on the Ken Burns uh, Country Music Series, I did that as a freelancer. But I do know from working with Ken and his team that, you know, for some things they came to the Country Music Hall of Fame to get those. The Hall of Fame wasn't the only repository they went to, but some things came. Got it. Here. What was that experience like for you? Well, the best part working with Ken Burns was, you know, in addition to reviewing scripts and helping them do interview questions, the best part was uh, about a year and a half before the series came out, uh, he flew all of the consultants up to his uh, compound in New Hampshire, to Walpole, New Hampshire, to view the rough cuts of each episode. And so every day we would, we would view two episodes, one in the morning, one in the afternoon with a lunch break in between. We would view them. Everyone in the room would comment on what's good, what's bad, and Ken Burns is so democratic in that he will make sure he gets everyone's opinion in the room. Wow, that's it, great. It, it was fabulous. That's great. And, great he, and he took our suggestions to heart. So here's some people you may have heard of, Buzz. Here is a costume from Hank Williams, the great Hank Williams, along with his boots, Eddie Arnold. Minnie Pearl's costume is over there. Over in this case, to your left, you see Singing Cowboys memorabilia from people like um, Roy Rogers and Tex Ritter and Gene Autry. The so all of greatness. Yeah, it really, it really is. And uh, we move through history walking along this corridor. We see people from the 1950s, Hank Snow, Lefty Frizzell has that fringe costume right there. Um, this is pretty cool. So we have, in this section, we, we introduce people to rockabilly. So we've got this film. Uh, there's Wanda Jackson, as you can hear on the audio. Great female rockabilly. She's rocking. Oh, she is. 
And you'll see in, in the course of this little film, you see several other prominent rockabilly performers. This, of course, was a phenomenon that happened in the mid-1950s, and Elvis was a big catalyst in this. And along with it, we have a whole case of rockabilly memorabilia, Wanda's uh, stage dress, Johnny Cash's Air Force uniform before he got into music, Everly Brothers guitars, Elvis jacket. Have you ever got to walk through with an artist? Oh, yeah. I, I walked through, uh, several years ago, I walked through with Buck Owens. And uh, Buck was very impressed. Um, what he, I think he liked best, besides seeing his own stuff in here, was Buck liked the fact that we don't, we're not Nashville-centric in the story we tell. We tell the story of all of country music across the country. And so there's a heavy component of California country in our uh, museum here. Like, there's one of Buck's red, white, and blue guitars. Sure. Along with Merle Haggard. And so Buck was happy to see that. It was, uh, it was really pleasing. And speaking of Merle Haggard, uh, when we had our Bakersfield exhibit downstairs where you'll go, that's where the uh, LA Country Rock exhibit is now, Merle Haggard came through. And interestingly, Merle was more interested, that, more than seeing his own memorabilia, uh, Merle was really touched to see memorabilia from his ex-wife, Bonnie Owens, which he, whom he worked with for many years, and Bill Woods, a guy he worked with very early on, and Tommy Collins, another friend of his from Bakersfield. And so it's interesting to see how different artists react, but, uh, but uh, Buck and Merle were both very pleased. That's awesome. It must have been quite a thrill for you walking through. Oh, with Buck, and you know what? He's he's taller than he than, even than he looks on stage. Buck was about yay tall. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm holding my hand like six inches over my head. Taller than us. Taller than us. Yeah. So, two of our famous cars here: Elvis Presley's solid gold Cadillac, and this is Webb Pierce's Nudie Mobile, customized by Nudie the rodeo tailor. I don't know if you've ever seen this, Buzz. No, I haven't. But it's really something. You, you can tell folks what kind of things you're seeing on it. Oh, my God. I mean, this, first of all, has in the uh, trunk, there's a, a, a rifle. There's a rifle strapped, there's to the, rifle strapped. Yeah, strapped to the top of the trunk. There are horses on the back bumper. Um, you'll see silver dollars studded all in the leather upholstery. And, and you know, it's... Uh, there's some fine leather on here. There's a saddle um, in the in the middle console between the two front seats. Pistols on the door handles. Yeah, this is a car for a uh, a shy individual. That's right, like Webb Pierce was. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Webb Pierce would routinely tell everybody he was the best. And in the 1950s, nobody had no more number one country hits than Webb Pierce. You got to be confident. He was. He was. <laughs> Quite a car. I'd love to take that for a spin. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is a section of our museum where we feature some of, we call it the precious jewel. We feature some of the most important instruments in country music. Jimmy Rogers Martin guitar, Mother Maybell Carter's Gibson L5, Bill Monroe's mandolin, the father of bluegrass. And as we tell the story here, in 1985, someone broke into his house and smashed that mandolin into a lot of tiny pieces. But the Gibson Company was able to take those tiny pieces, some as big as a matchstick, and glue them all back together. And you know what? After they fixed it, Bill played that mandolin till he died. 
Oh, my God. There is hope in the world. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you would never know that that got smashed to wow. pieces. What a great story. The famous Earl Scruggs, the Flatten Scruggs. Yes. His banjo. And his partner, Lester Flat, his Martin D28 guitar. And, of course, the famous Hank Williams, who also had a Martin guitar. Did the uh, did Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs? Do you know if they got along? As a, oh, they were they were they were good friends for for uh, twenty plus years. But what happened was they wanted to go in two different musical directions. Um, Earl Scruggs, with his sons, wanted to explore things like country rock. <laughs> Lester was like, "We've got to keep this very bluegrass and very country." So they they split up. And um, of all people, do you know who Marty Stewart is? Yes. So Marty Stewart, who's in the Country Music Hall of Fame, as a 13-year-old, went to work for Lester Flat in his bluegrass band. Oh, wow. Yes. So Marty's been learning for a long time. Wow. So, but they, they separated, but they still remained friends. Yeah, they were cordial. They weren't angry. I mean, it, it just it got to the point when they got to the late 60s where Earl said, you know, I want to do this stuff with my sons. I want to play, you know, newer rock influence songs and Lester said I'm not playing that so they just split but it wasn't angry okay and this is a whole section where we focus on many of the behind the scenes studio musicians who contribute so much to the music and I'm sure you will have heard of some of these people I'm not sure all of your listeners will have but Jerry Douglas definitely amazing dobro player yes um Don Rich, the right-hand man of Buck Owens, playing lead guitar and singing harmonies and leading the band. Um, Henry Strzelecki, who played on so many sessions, played bass. Um, who else have we got? We've got some instruments over here. I mean, these guys are often unsung heroes, right? They, they are, but, you know, these are, these are the guys who, who make the noise, yeah. you know, yeah. on 16th Avenue. Anyway, so, oh, you probably want to see, so we've got a Florida Georgia Line exhibit here. Yes. And this exhibit has been open almost a year on Florida Georgia Line, and it will close in January to be replaced by a new one. But you can see we've got some great stuff from Tyler Hubbard and Brian Kelly. Oh, yeah. From, it goes back to their childhood. We've got childhood photos, childhood memorabilia, on up through their becoming big hit artists about 10 years ago with Cruz. And I'll tell you, we have, in our theaters, we frequently have muse uh, museum programs with the artists that we feature in these, these exhibits. Like, for instance, we saw Martina McBride's exhibit on November 1st. We'll have a museum program with Martina McBride and songwriters she's collaborated with. I went to the program that Florida Georgia Line did when we opened this exhibit. And let me tell you, so it, it opened with an interview and then they performed. And sometimes people think that with these newer artists like um, Florida Georgia Line that they don't really make their own music. I'm here to tell you, it was those two guys, Brian and Tyler, with a small band, drums, bass, keyboard, electric guitar. They sounded awesome. I'll they were they great. And the, and the harmonies were real. Have you run across any uh, country artists that did not have a a respect for for the history? Oh, no. I mean, I, I think they all have some they kind of... They all do. But, but, they all do. You know, it, it, they, all, they all know of it in various degrees, right? Because they all come at the music from different angles. Well, like, we were just looking at Florida Georgia Line. So in addition to them being influenced by country, they were influenced by Christian worship music, by rap. And so 
they said from the stage during their program how honored they were to have an exhibit at the Country Music Hall of Fame and honored to be in the company of so many greats who come before them. But it doesn't mean that they know, they, they know the full history, but hey, it's here for them if they want to encounter it, you know? Right. We, we, we tell it in great depth, but um, yeah, I've never encountered a country music artist who, who had no respect for the history. When did you know in your life that you were going to be sort of, you know, you're a managing editor, but you're mm-hmm. really a historian of, mm-hmm. of sorts as well, an archivist. Yeah, yeah. Right. When did you know this would be your passion in your life? I didn't know that uh, for a while. You know, I knew, I knew in high school and college I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to do research and writing. And so I was a very young writer when I found out about this position at the Country Music Hall of Fame in 1985. I guess it was 1984 when I was finding out about it and applied for it. What happened was I've always been a huge music fan. I had a small country music collection, but I wasn't knowledgeable. And so I interviewed with the current CEO of the Country Music Hall of Fame, Kyle Young, in 1985. And we had a very good interview. And I just, I was frank. I said, I am not a country music expert. I've got a half dozen country music albums, you know, Waylon and Willie, Hank Williams' greatest hits. I'm not an expert. He said, if you're interested and you care about music and you want to learn, being here is like being in a graduate program in country music history. He said, we've got the experts already. We can bring you along if you care to learn. I said, I definitely care to learn. It's part of Nashville. I live in Nashville. It's part of American history. So uh, I will say that, you know, every day is a learning experience, but I've been learning now about country music since 1985 in a serious way. What a grateful, grateful I, thing. I'm definitely grateful. Yeah, yeah. wow, wow. So um, we've told you a little bit about Western Edge, the roots and reverberations of Los Angeles country rock. So we just opened this a couple of weeks ago. Major exhibition, and we'll take a quick zoom through it. You probably will have some questions, but we wanted to remind people. So we're focusing on the 1960s through the 80s, but with this little case here, with a a beautiful costume by Nathan Turk, he made this for Rose Maddox of the Maddox Brothers and Rose, and guitars for Joe Mathis and his wife, Rose Lee Mathis, who played on Town Hall Party and out in L.A. This shows us the foundations of country, country rock and country music in L.A. before all these very rock-influenced people got involved. Yes. And uh, another little precursor we have is all of this is going to lead us to Dwight Yoakam. And so here's a Dwight Yoakam costume from uh, the mid-'80s when he was breaking out. And we feel like this is a pretty good quote. On the Pacific coast, there are fewer shackles on tradition. There is a decided willingness to take a chance on new ideas. Attributed to Henry Dreyfus, pioneering American industrial designer and author. What a great quote. Yeah. Well, and so this is all about people bringing interesting ideas about country music to rock and rock to country music and what you get. And so here's a nitty-gritty dirt band and a TV photo. Dwight Yoakam does our introductory film. And then we do a little walk through this history of country rock. It's bubbling up from bluegrass on the West Coast. Look, can you see who that is? Do you know? 
Chris Hillman. Chris Hillman. The Birds. Yeah. Chris Hillman, before uh, he had that big sort of uh, Afro cut, if you will. That's right. This right? Chris Hillman, the early 60s, before he gets involved with the Birds, the Flying Burrito Brothers and Graham Parsons, before he goes on to lead the Desert Rose Band. I did come through this exhibit in preparation for seeing you, and, okay. and I have to tell you, there's so many people in this exhibit, and you'll point them out, that are really unsung heroes for the, the movement of uh, country L.A. Yeah. music. Well, I'll say, so people who really love the music of this era, you know, the late 60s into the 70s, Clarence White, one of the, the main unsung heroes, incredible guitar player who came out of bluegrass. There's his stage costume and there's his Telecaster. People are still trying to learn how to play like Clarence White did. Yep. Unfortunately, he was killed uh, by a drunk driver who, who ran into him when he was loading out gear after a gig in the 70s. But yeah, his music lives on. Now, I know you know this guy. Oh, yeah. Rick Nelson. Yeah. And here we go. The famous Garden Party album with the jacket he wore on it, with the Les Paul guitar he was holding, with his manuscript for writing the song Garden Party. Oh, that's sensational. I was a big fan of that one for sure. Yeah. And there he is. There's, there's Rick with his band. Handsome Rick. So uh, I love this uh, photo here on the wall of uh, Doug Weston's uh, Troubadour. Yeah. And uh, it looks like it takes you back to that moment. Yeah. So one reason why we feature the Troubadour here is it was one of those key flashpoints for L.A. country rock, for country musicians, rock musicians coming together, kind of experimenting on stage, coming up with new combinations of music. And so we've got a little feature on the Troubadour there. Love it. And I guess you saw Mike Nesmith. Many people know him from the Monkees, but he also was a huge country rock pioneer as both a monkey and as a solo artist. And what do you think of that costume, Buzz? I would look good in that one for sure. <laughs> All right, let's play a little uh, little trivia. I know you know the answer. Well, we'll see. What was his mother responsible for? White out. White out. You use it to, in the old days, old guys like us <laughs> used to use it to clean up typing mistakes. And so he was kind of a, it wasn't his trust fund, I get, but he, he came from a lot of money. But you know what? He didn't act like it. He just wanted to make great music. That's right. Uh, can we get Paul a t-shirt for winning the trivia question? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Oops, excuse me. So here's a photo of the birds, Chris Hellman down there, his buddies and the birds on up top. Wow, this is interesting. So Chris Hellman took this picture, huh? Wow. Well, it's, oh, it's courtesy, courtesy yeah, so he yeah. owns it. Somebody gave it to Chris probably. But there he is. There's Roger McGuinn, Gene Clark, David Crosby. Many people know him from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Michael Clark on drums. And Roger McGuinn, God love him, still out playing these Oh, days. he's amazing. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah, sweetheart, too. Yeah. So, we move on through history, and you see things like Graham Parsons, Graham Parsons show, his protege, Emmy Lou Harris, her costume, her famous guitar with the inlaid rose. People, I remember when I first heard of Graham Parsons, spoke about him in almost like reverential terms. You know, there was like a mystique 
about him for sure. Uh, and I think it was, I mean, Amy Lou talks that way about him. It's, it's that he was one of the first to get there and say, there's a way to pull country and rock together that has integrity for both. Yes. And, and he was so passionate about country music, and he instilled that passion in Amy Lou Harris for sure, and she carried the torch after he passed away. And she's still carrying it. She still is. Yep. She still is. So stuff, we've got, we've got wonderful memorabilia here from the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, as well as Poco. Um, see Jeff Hanacost's stage costume here. Um, Richie Fure of Buffalo Springfield and later Poco, there's one of his stage costumes. You know, what was so interesting about this, this music uh, of this era and all many of these artists, uh, but in particular, we talk about Poco, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, mm -hmm. coming out of the, uh, what was called AOR Radio, right. album-oriented rock, where I started, um, these bands became integral to that format. They did. They did. Yeah, I mean... I think this music that we feature here for a lot of baby boomers is some of the soundtrack of their lives. Absolutely. You know? and, and it turned some of them on to country music, turned some of them on to different kinds of rock music. Well, it's funny. So there's people to this day that still go when you talk about country. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if I like country. And then I did this to someone the other day. I yeah. said, oh, let me ask you a question. Do you like this band called The Eagles? <laughs> and they were like, yeah. I said, well, then consider yourself someone who likes country. You know, the Eagles hit the country charts as well as the pop charts. They, they took a lot from country music. And, of course, they're featured in here. We've got, in this case, we've got things that uh, pertain to Linda Ronstadt, to the Eagles, to songwriter J.D. Souther, who wrote a lot with the Eagles, because he's a good, good friend of theirs. And well, we look at here, this picture right. from uh, Joshua Tree National Park uh, of the Eagles, uh, photo by Henry Diltz. I had Henry on uh, taking a walk when I went go, to I've L.A. I've got to hear that one. Uh, Henry told me the story about... They were up until uh, 2 in the morning, I think, at uh, probably the Troubadour, I'm yeah. guessing. And uh, let's just say they were getting into uh, some mischief, <laughs> you know, okay. some, uh, a little bit of uh, hallucinogens, possibly. Okay. And uh, they drove out there, and he described it in this magical way where it just sounded like they just had pure joy out there, laughing, being silly, taking photos, and Henry's key was, he wasn't really a photographer in the true sense, he was just a friend of theirs. Well, he was a great photographer. He still is a great photographer. He sure is. Well, and so some of the song manuscripts we have here from J.D. Souther are, are of big hits that the Eagles had. New Kid in Town, we've got the manuscript up there, A Heartache Tonight. The Best of My Love. The song manuscripts are right there in front of you. Oh, man, some of my favorites. This is a great exhibit. To right there. Man, takes your breath away, all that music. Yeah, it, it really does. It really does. And, and here was a Telecaster guitar. Here's a Telecaster guitar that Bernie Ledden of the Eagles played on a lot of their hits. And that whole mechanism back there is something we call a B-bender which allows a, a guitar player, by just pulling down it on the strap, it 
pulls a mechanism that pulls a string and gives you a little bit of the sound of a steel guitar on a regular electric guitar. Now the guy who pioneered that was Clarence White that we talked about earlier, but Bernie got into that sound too. You musician at all? I play guitar. Yeah. 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 I don't play guitar like Bernie or <laughs> Clarence White, but I play. But you play. Yeah. And now we're carrying it forward into the 80s. And you you see things like the Desert Rose Band, which Chris Hillman led. Chris Hillman that we saw back in those bluegrass sure. bands back there, who was in the birds. Yep. Chris Hillman led the Desert Rose Band. There he is on stage with his guitar player, John Jorgensen. Yeah. Rosie Flores, big in the LA scene in the 1980s. And still going strong. I just saw her at a local festival. She was great. Oh, wow. Um, some of those bands that some people were calling cowpunk, like Rank and File and Lone Justice are featured here. Big in the 1980s. Dwight Yoakam, of course, broke out of L.A. in a big way. I always loved uh, Lone Justice and Maria McKee's uh, yeah. lead singing. Yeah, there. she did a nice video. We, we did more than 40 hours of video interviews as research for this exhibit, but also we're showing those portions of those interviews on video screens around the exhibit and we've got touchscreen interactive so people can access some of that stuff. That's great. So you could spend a couple hours in here easy. You can get lost in here in a yeah. great way. So shall we walk back through some more of country music history? Perfect. Alright, so there's big old Waylon on the wall from the 1970s. And now we start to hit, we're back in the flow of country music history and we're featuring people like Glenn Campbell and Ray Charles, who was recently inducted in the Country Music Hall of Fame. Jeannie C. Riley. People remember her from Harper Valley PTA. And back in the corner, that's a big old Johnny Cash suit. Oh, <laughs> love that. Roger Miller, in two years, won 11 Grammys. You probably know about sure. this. There are the 11 Grammys he won in two years. Nobody's ever won that many Grammys in two years, but Roger Miller did. He was a big star. John Hartford, you talk about yeah. unsung. This guy was, uh, didn't he come out of the great Glenn Campbell sort of camp? He was. He was on the Glenn Campbell show and was part of their team of comedy writers along with Steve Martin. He, he says, or he said, he's passed away. John said he didn't actually contribute all that many ideas, but he, he, he was part of the writing staff. And also, you know, when uh, the show would open up, the guy playing the banjo on the Glenn T Campbell Good Time Hour, that was John Arthur. Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah, so he's featured here, and he was a great songwriter and artist. Wrote Channel On My Mind, which was the first big hit. Glenn Campbell. Which, and, and that group of uh, musicians, I mean, they were just, uh, they were big stars in that era, right? Because of TV. Oh, yeah. TV did launch a lot of country stars. And, I mean, over here you see some Dolly Parton, Tanya Tucker, Tammy Wynette. Let's talk about Dolly for a second. Sure. Is she one of the most amazing individuals, like, ever? Oh, I... She is so brilliant. She's done so much. You know, there are people who kind of know of her as a personality who don't realize what an incredible songwriter Dolly Parton yeah, yeah, is. Yeah. I mean, people who really know country music know that, but there are many people who still don't know that Dolly Parton wrote I Will Always Love You. She's a force of nature. Oh, she is. Yeah. 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 She, and 
She does great good with her philanthropy. You know, she gave money to uh, COVID research yep. at Vanderbilt Medical Center here in Nashville. I think it was more than a million dollars. Yeah. And um, she is really a wonderful person, has been a good friend of the Country Music Hall of Fame over the years. So talk about the artists and how they support the Country Music Hall of Fame. They're, they well, really, I mean, like they do financially, right? Well, so I would say the main way that they support us financially is periodically um, artists will have a fundraising concert for us uh, in Nashville or New York or L.A. And we've also recently done this in Dallas. They call it, we call it All for the Hall. And artists like Vince Gill and Keith Urban kind of kicked off this whole thing of, we're going to donate our time, yep. we're going to do a, a multi-artist concert, and the proceeds will go to the Country Music Hall of Fame. So they've been doing that for us for several years, and it really is an easier way for them to go, because all of these people, these artists give so much to so many charities. This way, you know, it's not like they're writing a check for the Hall of Fame and somebody says, well, you're writing a check for the Hall of Fame. Why can't you write a check for me? They're donating their time. If people want to buy those tickets, and they have, they've sold out consistently. That's that's how they raise money for us. Got it. Well, you've heard of folks like these. Freddie Fender, Kenny Rogers, Dottie West. Paul, can we look at this uh, Nashville skyline? Here? Absolutely. All right, this this is a near and dear period for for me certainly. So this uh, guy, I think you, you've heard of this guy. Huh? I think Bob Dylan is somebody that we've heard of. Uh, well, I was here some years ago when yeah. you had the special, or the hall had the special uh, exhibit with Bob and Johnny Cash. Oh yes, yes, yeah. Dylan wonderful. Cash and the Nashville Cats. Yeah, yes, which it was, was wonderful. Really cool. I'm glad you liked that. Yeah, I'm glad you liked that. But I don't know if I even showed you in our country rock exhibit, Buzz. But you see that photo there of Chris Hillman, Chris Etheridge, Graham Parsons, and Sneaky Pete Kleinow from the Flying Burrito Brothers. We have three of those four costumes on display in that exhibit over there. So when Bob came down here, he instantly just seemed to just be comfortable. He was welcomed. Yeah, in. well, if you if you saw that exhibit and you kind of read through it, so um, his producer at the time, um, Bob Johnston, is it Roland Bob? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Bob convinced Bob Dylan to give Nashville a try after Bob Dylan met Charlie McCoy, a member of the Country Music Hall of Fame, and Charlie played some things for Bob up in New York and played on a session for him. And Bob Bob said. That's pretty good. Bob Johnston said, there are bunches of guys who pick like that in Nashville. Let's take you down there. So this first big album that he recorded in Nashville was Blonde on Blonde in 66. Huge hit album, right? Oh, yeah. Huge hit album. Quintessential, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, yeah, Bob was easily convinced that these guys know what they're doing. Uh, am I mistaken? Did he have some uh, collaboration during that period with... Charlie Daniels is part of it. Oh yeah, thing? Charlie Daniels played yeah. on, a, on a couple of those Bob Dylan albums. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and in fact, we could go right back around the corner and it will show you a, a Telecaster guitar that Charlie Daniels played on Bob Dylan's sessions. It's right oh, here. Oh, there it is. Okay. Look at that. Yeah. Wow. He played, see, he played this on Dylan's Nashville Skyline and Self Portrait. Oh my God. Charlie Daniels guitar. People, I think, forget about his uh, accomplished playing. Really. Oh, it's a great, 
great guitar player, great fiddler, yeah. great entertainer, yes. all around entertainer. Definitely. Okay, well, we got a guy we're looking at who, uh, my God, what uh, an incredible force he has become. Let's right. talk about him. So we're, we are stepping right here into our major exhibit on Chris Stapleton, who has, since he broke out big in 2015 has been a major force in country and rock music, for sure. I mean, there's so many rock fans who love Chris Stapleton because he brings a real grit and fire to what he does. He's amazing. I was fortunate, uh, you know, when the uh, country radio seminar has the uh, Universal Music Group event at uh, the Ryman to see Chris there, and uh, I guess I would describe it as jaw-dropping. Oh, yeah. I mean, in, in so many ways. I mean, what a voice. What a great guitar player. I mean, uh, the interesting thing is, and as people go through this exhibit and look into it, read about it, they'll see that Chris, for many years, for more than 10 years, he was known mainly as a songwriter in Nashville. And he wrote big hits for people like Josh Turner and Thomas Rhett. I mean, Darius Rucker. He, he wrote lots and lots of hits. But um, lots of people also said he's such a great performer. Surely there's a market for him as an artist. And, and eventually when he recorded his album Traveler and it came out in 2015, that was the big turning point for him. That uh, he finally captured the sound that was in his head, you know? He's an amazing performer, my God. And so you can see this is a very detailed exhibit on uh, Chris Stapleton and he and his team were wonderful in really emptying out the closets. I'm like, oh my goodness, we've got guitars throughout his whole life, costumes, uh, other instruments, amps, um, song manuscripts, awards. And as we do with all our exhibits, we tell sort of the story of how he got to be who he is. Do you get a sense with an artist like Chris Stapleton that, I mean, we're really just seeing the beginning of what he's yet to oh, accomplish? Oh, with him, I think there's a lot he could accomplish, yeah. I yeah. mean, he's he's been doing various kind of guest appearances on other artists, you know, on an R&B and rock artist albums, and yeah, he could take this in so many directions, and, he's, and he kind of pulls so many people together across the boundaries of music, because he crosses the boundaries. Yeah, love him. So, give us some folks I know you'll you'll know about. You've seen seen uh, them on stage, you've heard the records, Mary Chapin Carpenter, Pam Tillis, Trisha Yearwood. Um, Patty Loveless, Alan Jackson down there in the exhibit. And I know you recognize that costume, Buzz. Oh boy, that is Shania. Shania in her leopard print outfit with bare belly. <laughs> That's what she did. Yeah. Garth Brooks, Vince Gill. So what do you make of where Vince and Garth are today in their careers? Uh, I, well, I mean, it, Neither of them has to do it anymore in that they've kind of established themselves as amazing artists. They've both recorded, you know, more than a dozen albums that are great and have done well. I'll say that they're both still at the peak of their game. We had an amazing, a couple weeks ago, an amazing kickoff concert for the L.A. Country Rock exhibit, and Vince sang. Oh, my gosh, he's singing better then he sang 20 years ago. Yeah. Everybody was saying it. And I was fortunate enough to attend a Garth Brooks concert in Las Vegas this summer. 
uh, you know, in the Dome Stadium that the Raiders play in. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Garth is older than 60, and he. The last time I had seen a full concert of him live was in the 90s. He has more energy now than he had in the 1990s. He did the full more than two hour show. Trisha came on and sang with him. He did acoustic set. Uh, so I guess you're, to answer your question, these guys can do what they want to do. They still have it. They still got it. They still got a following. And I think it's really... They're not doing it for the money, they're doing it for the love of the music, right? Well, I was going to get to that. So, yeah, that's really uh, permeates the entire, you know, sort of country scene, really. They, of course, it's, it, it's a commitment to the music, and uh, it's a living, right. but it's a, you know, they're driven by the love of the performance, the love of the music. I think um, a lot of them are. They, I really believe that. I'll give you a case in point. So... The Grand Ole Opry is still going, longest running radio show in the United States since 1925. Uh, many, many of these stars we're talking about are members of the Grand Ole Opry and appear from time to time. They don't get paid the normal thousands of dollars. When they appear on the Opry, they get paid union scale. They get paid a very small amount. They do it for the love of the history, the love of the tradition. You know, when you see Vince appear there, Garth, Alan Jackson, Patty Loveless, all these people, it's because they love the music. I saw Garth a couple years back when CRS uh, had a bunch of radio folks in the, uh, I, I can't remember the bar, but little little bar performance yep. uh, on Broadway. And oh my goodness, what an event. Now, back to Vince, do you think him now being an eagle, um, do you think that makes him, you know, even a stronger performer just by being around other uh, people maybe he admires? Um, you know, I, I don't know if it makes him stronger. I'm sure, you know, he seems like the kind of guy who's always learning and always wanting to build. I yeah. mean, it's like he hasn't stopped in his progress. Uh, I, my guess, okay, I'm prejudiced, but I think Vince is probably teaching those guys a few things. Okay, there you go. I love that. And I, they'd be willing. I think they would be willing. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, this whole section here is on, you know, this bringing us into the 2000s. You've got Brad Paisley and Big and Rich and Toby Keith and Jamie Johnson featured over here and Rascal Flatts. And Darius Rucker is in the case over there with uh, a video of him doing Wagon Wheel. This is the, the outfit that Darius Rucker wore when he did Wagon Wheel. Eric Church. Now, I don't know if you have time for this, Buzz, but we have a whole exhibit that we change out annually every March. It's called American Currents, and it's the it's it's our view back at the previous year. So I don't know. Do you have time to walk through American Currents? Yeah, let's Currents? take a walk through. So this is our our take on significant things that happened in country music in 2021. So we opened this in March 2022, and you can see. We, we, have, we like to do this part of the exhibit, which is we call Unbroken Circle, and the idea is to show influences back and forth. Leanne Womack influencing Lainey Wilson. Keith Urban influencing Breland. They've worked together. Brittany Spencer and Reba McIntyre. Reba being a big influence on Brittany, both really big, great singers. It's critical, because this is how it's always been in Nashville, the influence part. Yeah, yeah. And 
we do this video thing where we kind of recap highlights from the year. This whole section is we, we show people what were the biggest selling albums of the year, who sold the most concert tickets, who had the, the biggest singles. Yep. So that's what this is all about. And then you'll see a number of exhibit cases here, just various folks who had big years in 2021. Taylor Swift, of course, re-released some of her early albums in brand new Taylor's versions, which were me hit all over again, you know? Talk about a force of nature. Oh, she absolutely is. Brothers Love the Brothers Osborne. Love and, that. you know, one thing we do in American Currents is we, we have a big tent. So an artist like Alison Russell, who I think a lot of people would say is more Americana than yep. strict mainstream country, we include them. These guys, John Hyatt, Jerry Douglas, oh, Big yeah. Tent, you know, but yeah. they recorded in RCA Studio B. They did. Which is, you know, one of the properties that we run and allow people to visit, this famous recording studio that Chet Atkins ran for many years. Big big fan of those guys. Alison Krauss featured. She's out with uh, Robert Plant these oh, days, Oh, yeah, right? they're amazing yeah. together. Let's talk about this gentleman. What well, an amazing story, Jimmy Allen. You know, Jimmy Allen was living out of his car at one point, you know, trying to pull it together. And uh, what a great talent Jimmy Allen is. And, you know, he's, he's won now significant awards in country music, you know, the ACM's New Male Artist of the Year, CMA's New Artist of the Year. Um, yeah, he's really breaking out, I think. I love it. Old Dominion, yeah. consistently winning CMA and ACM awards. Billy Strings, Chris Stapleton. Of course, we just passed his exhibit, but we featured him here before we opened the other. Um, can't deny Luke Combs. What a major force he's become in country music. This is amazing. So, Paul, last question. Mm -hmm. How lucky every day do you feel when you wake up with the job that you have. Oh, I get to have fun every day. I, there's, it, it's, um, it's a dream job. It's a dream job. Um, you know, the people are great. Um, the artists are great. Um, they are generally a dream to work with. Um, and it, what a gas it is to walk into the museum as we are walking today and see so many people just their faces almost pressed up against the glass like I need to know more about this artist who means so much to me yeah. I love seeing that well this is great I love seeing that now I have to take you into the Hall of Fame itself right yes we have to walk into that so I've worked in both the old original Country Music Hall of Fame building that opened in 1967 on Music Row and closed in 2001 and I've worked and, and I work in this new building which we opened in 2001 and I can tell you the old Hall of Fame hallowed area was not as impressive as what we're about to walk into now and maybe rather than me brag on what our Hall of Fame rotunda looks like maybe you Buzz could tell the listeners what you feel as you walk into it okay you got it yeah the hallowed halls so what do you feel and what do you see when you walk in here? Well, first of all, I'm struck by the great line of Will the Circle Be Unbroken, which is... Famous is Carter a, family song. One of the most amazing songs uh, ever. But then, of course, uh, I mean, it feels really, um, I dare say, 
almost like church. Yeah. Right? Well, that's kind of the feel we were going for. You know, you got natural light pouring in. Yeah. In this circular, huge circular room, and we've got the plaques of all of the 149 Country Music Hall of Fame members on the wall. But you'll notice they're not organized in alphabetical or chronological order. They're organized randomly because that's our way of saying everyone who enters, who, be, who becomes a member of the Country Music Hall of Fame is equal with everyone else. They're all equally important. They're all Country Music Hall of Famers. The three newest members of the Country Music Hall of Fame are on the wall back here close to this famous mural, the sources of country music painted by Thomas Hart Benton in 1975. So the three newest members of the Hall of Fame are record executive Joe Galante, the late Keith Whitley, and the killer, Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, look at that. And isn't that fantastic? The, uh, the artist captured him playing his piano that Which he magical. plays like no one else. Wow, tremendous! Yeah, it's a, there's a there's a sense of of spirit here. There's a sense of um, calm, certainly, but uh, respect for everything that's you know that's been around us. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. That that's that's what we're trying to convey here. Is these are the greats of country music, you know. We, we want to honor them. We want people to feel like they can commune with their spirit here. Conveyed. Yeah, good. Conveyed. Good. Paul, I'm so grateful for taking a walk through the Country Music Hall of Fame and with your vantage point in particular, it was very special. Thank you for uh, allowing me to be part of it. Well, it was a blast, Buzz. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. 
And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.